Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. John, great to see and get caught up as always. Uh, you have a huge following in Canada, so I'm glad that uh, people are going to be able to hear what you have to say and think these days with the market rallying. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. Great to be with you again. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it has been unbelievable when you, if you put this all in retrospect as what a year and a half ago things went on, like who would have thought we'd be here where we are in terms of markets? I mean, there's obviously other casualties, other issues, and, and you know, economically, it's not quite back yet, but it's uh, market-wise, it's been surprisingly, uh, surprisingly good. But let's face it, I mean, there was a lot of stimulus thrown at it. I mean, look at where interest rates are, the, the fiscal stimulus and, and everything else. I mean, it was Probably no better indication of that than the banks, which uh, what took twenty billion in reserves and didn't really end up touching that much since they didn't have to because of all the you know programs out there that gave support. Yeah, um, and and you know it almost feels when you're just looking at the market today and it's Tuesday the ninth um, that um, that it feels a little bit like a Goldilocks scenario in the sense that you know we heard from Fed Chair Jerome Powell last week. Um, you know, they're going to start tapering, obviously, but it seems as though raising rates is, is, is a far distance from where we're at right now. Bond market, I don't know what they're trying to tell us, doesn't seem to believe that they're seeing rates increase any anytime soon and or that there really is no inflation longer term. So um, I, I think that that's something that a lot of people are paying attention to. Like in your mind, what is the U.S. 10-year yield telling you at 1.4? It was back down from 1.6. It is a confusing story on the bonds, uh, Catherine. Absolutely. Like uh, I keep looking at thinking where inflation is right now and given you where economic growth has been for the last couple of quarters, the idea that rates are staying as under control as they are just is somewhat surprising. Um, I think there's a natural bid still in for bonds, the banks, uh, until they start getting into bigger loans have been buyers in there. Obviously, the Fed and all the central banks, you know, they've begun their tapering. But for now, I mean, they've been in out there buying, you know, the Fed has been buying $120 a month worth of Treasury. I mean, you throw that bid into any market and it's going to have some some support. And I guess there's just a little bit of view that, yeah, this, you know, we still will migrate back to a a period of slower growth. We've got some uh, inflation concerns in the short term, um, but... I think people are thinking that, you know, I don't, I don't want to use the buzzwords that have been used transient and all of that uh, over and over again, but it, there is some belief that this is not, you know, cyclical inflation or long-term inflation like it's been in the past. It, it, it is due to the supply chain issues and, you know, you get away from that. And in the end, you know, whatever stimulus got the economy out of this, you knew you would have a B-shaped recovery. Now we're sort of moderating into this slower growth period that we've seen for a lot of the past decade. And, you know, Europe, North America, you know, these are 2% growth economies now, Catherine. So, I mean, in, in that environment, the bottom line for interest rates, they're not going dramatically higher. You know, they're not going lower from here and, and I sort of get that, but it's not like they're going to race back to where they are, you know, never mind pre-pandemic, but pre-financial crisis or anything like that. I just don't think it's in the cards. And just to unpack that a little bit, um, in terms of why you don't see the interest rates rising higher is because 
if you really don't have much global growth, call it 2%, you really don't have uh, price increases, and therefore there's no reason why the interest rate environment would be 5% longer term. No, and, and absolutely right. I mean, in what you still have the impact of, 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 of technology out there on overall sort of disinflation, and you just can't get away from that, where you got a growing part of the economy where you've actually costs falling, prices falling every single year, that impact, impacts the overall numbers. In the short term, we're getting some spikes in inflation like we haven't seen in, in a dozen years, but, you know, that's just... That sort of makes sense in some ways, Catherine, because you look at it. I mean, we spent 30 years building up these global supply chains. I mean, 30 years ago, you never heard of, you know, logistics and <laughs> inventory management and everything like that. You spent 30 yeah. years, and then in a period of a couple of weeks, you crash them all back down. So you can't put them in place again immediately. And the other problem, they're global supply chains, and the recovery, the global recovery is sort of uneven. As you know, in, in different places, yeah. we're going at different rates. So... You can't start up these chains immediately. So in all of that, is it any surprising that, you know, semiconductors and a lot of other consumer goods and all of that are into, you know, shortages and everything else? And that gives you some spikes in inflation. But in the end, I, I don't see those as being as long lasting. You'll get them, you know, you'll, you'll get these productions back going again. You'll start to build up inventories again. And, and those price pressures will dissipate. And I think, but, you know, to go back to the beginning of this gathering, I think that's what the bond market is telling you, in essence, is that it believes that whatever inflation is out there is not going to last. Growth is going to moderate a little bit and, and interest rates aren't going to rise dramatically. Mm -hmm. I, I guess what's key as well in that conversation is um, uh, for, for how long, in the sense that how long, and I'm sure there's research and science on this, but I haven't actually looked, but this is the question I probably want answered. Um, you know, to really get the supply chains back online does require global COVID coordination in, in terms of making sure the countries all around the world really have enough and the right supply and the desire to, to have uh, the vaccine. So, um, you know, I wonder how long that takes because that, that is what will prolong, I think, the length of the equity rally, if you can kind of understand that timing. Well, yes, to some degree. In terms of, of unpacking that a little bit more, I think what you're already seeing is, is a lot of shifts in production. I mean, the, the global supply chains are, you know, will continue to be, but they don't have to source materials the way they did it before. You can, you know, you can shift things all, all around globally, and that's what these logistics systems, you know, can help them do. So I think they can probably remediate the problems and fix them maybe a little bit more quickly than the worst case scenario. So it, you're right, it'll last for a little bit of time before you, you know, unclog it completely but you're already starting to do it i mean you saw what happened in the port of california recently and you start to you know unblock that bottleneck there you start to do it even to the the conference calls i've been on with you know the auto industry companies which are you know they they are the epicenter of the supply chain yeah. problems even they're starting to say you know listen it's not going away but you know q4 is not going to be as bad as q3 2022 is going to be better than 2021 so it you know it, it's in that way it's headed in the right direction and I actually want to pick up on that because it was interesting to take a look at Magna's commentary on their conference call um, and how the supply shortage has been affecting them. It seemed as though it was a little bit more serious than what you're you're mentioning, but maybe that's backward looking. I'm I'm backward looking. Well, I, I think the the menu, the uh, the auto industry, like I said, I think they they represent the problems to some degree. And I, and the more you look at it, I think the the semiconductor companies, the chip companies have sort of not been putting front and center the chips 
that are needed, sort of, I don't call a lower end, but probably more the working chips that are needed in the auto industry assemblies, from what I understand it, as mm. opposed to sort of the higher end, more profitable chips that are going to go into, you know, the NVIDIAs of the world, into gaming, you know, you're selling them to Apple and other things like that. So I think it's a little of, you know, who's first in line in terms of getting these products back on. So yeah, you're starting to get some semiconductor pr production back on. And you've seen that in the semi numbers. I mean, look at, you know, Qualcomm this, this quarter, you know, AMD, NVIDIA, I mean, right across the board. I mean, the semiconductor index is yeah. right back at an all time high. So I, you know, those problems are not, you know, necessarily long-term problems, but then you look at the intels of the world. And yeah, the guys who are selling into a particular type of market are, are struggling a little bit more. And I, and I think, you know, the users of those markets, the auto industry are the ones who are probably maybe last in line to start getting resupplied on what they need to get the, the assemblies together. So in the meantime, they're going to build vehicles, but they're going to be missing a few components and it stops them from selling them. So, And, and John, um, you know, just given your years of experience in the business and managing money, um, when you take a look at an NVIDIA that has hit record highs and, you know, going back, I don't even know what price level, you know, personally own it, but, um, but, you know, the valuation is high and it's difficult though, to sell something that is working and you think will continue to work. So as a portfolio manager with all of your years of experience, like how do you approach that? What's, what's the discipline surrounding that? Well, I think, you know, discipline is probably a good word there, Catherine, because I think you look at the markets right now and I have a hard time getting extremely bearish because the alternatives, you know, remain very unattractive. And that's not going to change in this interest rate environment. Are you, are you really going to go out and buy a 10 or a 30 year bond where you're locking in a negative real rate of return? Cash is so unattractive. So degree, you know, the stock market will continue to you know, take in the currency. It'll take in some of this and, you know, other assets as well. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to chase the most expensive sort of highest uh, octane areas of, of the market where the most momentum is. And you've seen that break down. I mean, look at a, you know, Peloton the other day. I mean, which was, yeah. I mean, in retrospect, it's sort of an easy call, but yeah, it's down what, you know, you know, 70% from the peak. Uh, uh, Zoom, will, although nothing's really been impeded about their business, is down more than 50% from the peak. So, I mean, you can get in trouble chasing the hot stocks and the very high multiples. So I think discipline is the key. And I, I think what we've been driving ourselves to lately is we're not changing our, our equity risk or our equity exposure that dramatically, but I really have been shifting a lot more lately into things that I think are a little bit more defensive protectionist in nature in terms of higher dividend yield you know, which is which is key, uh, more stable earnings, less impacted by the economic cycle and, and valuation. You know, there are a lot, you know, it's it's been a, a strong market and high valuations overall when you look at the multiple of the market. But I mean, let's face it, you, you pull, you know, Apple, Microsoft and those things that are now 25 percent of the index out the market multiple is not really that high. Look at the difference between, you know, the, the growth and value index or Canada versus the U.S. So it's you know, in the end, I, I think you can stay with the market. There will always be a chance of a 10%, 15% correction at any point, mm -hmm. especially when you run this hard. This hard sentiment is extended as it is. And, and like I said before, you're, you're, you're pulling away some of those interest rate supports. But, you know, is there, in my mind, if you say it's a huge valuation downside to most parts of the market, I'd say no. This reminds me a lot of where we were in 2000. And remember, you took... Oh. Walk out of that tech index in a big way and went down 70, 80%. You look at a lot of the rest of the market. You know, they, it, they didn't come off that much in the downturn. And then, you know, a year later, six months later, they're back at old highs and moving stronger again. I think we're a little in that a similar environment now. 
Yeah. And, and just to be clear, in terms of, you know, taking a look at the NVIDIAs and not chasing them, that's different than owning them and not selling. So yeah. what, what, are you, what, do, what have you done historically when you see these valuations? I mean, I, you know, I, you look at stock specific stories, you own the stock, you say, you know, it's never traded this high from a valuation perspective. Not, I'm not saying NVIDIA, but it just in generally when you do analysis, um, you know, it's, if it's rich on all these metrics. I mean, when you see that, do you sell, do you ride it out a li little bit longer? And, and people should know too, you've run a hedge fund as well. So you can go long and short. Yeah, you know, I'll start with that last part of the Shorts, I, I haven't put on any shorts in the longest time now. I mean, it is just too dangerous to do individual stock shorts, maybe index shorts to hedge positions, but individual shorts, you know, like forget it. I think that game has changed because of the, you know, with the, the meme, the Reddit crowd. So, I mean, yeah. that, that is a whole new level of, of risk. And as you know, yeah. with a short position, your your liability or your downside is basically unlimited. So, you know, so, so that's effectively a higher risk. But the other, the other part of it, sort of laughable, because I think back at, you know, 1999, 2000, we used to jokingly say we've got 5% of our portfolio or 10% in what we call valuation irrelevant sector of the market. And in the end, it really wasn't irrelevant. But you're, you're right, you've got, you know, some of, you're going to hold some of these things. And I, I still have Apple in the portfolio. I still have, you know, Microsoft. I still have, you know, Alphabet, some of these highly valued names, but we just don't have them to the weights that they, the index are calling for or anything like that. I, I think there's still great long-term growth stories are just you know way ahead of themselves. It's just the difference between a good company and a good stock. Like, I mean, you know, migrating back on that point, you can sort of think of Microsoft back in the year 2000. And I think the stock ended up dropping 70% from, from its peak. And it mm -hmm. took 15 years, more than 15 years before it got back to that level. And you think, wow, it must have done really poorly. You think, no. Between the year 2000 and 2015, the company drew, grew dramatically. There was no earnings disappointment. It's just the valuation got so ahead yeah. of the stock itself. So you have to wait for it to cover. So I think there's a little of that. And I think some of the tech sector is in that mode right now where it's just far ahead. I mean, Shopify is a great company. But you're paying probably today for 2027, 28 at this, you know, at, at growing at the same rate. I, I don't feel that comfortable where, whereas I can go and buy an energy stock today where you're, you're paying for an oil price that's probably, you know, 20% lower when they, where the market actually is or an auto stock where you're, you know, paying as if we're going into a recession. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that then in terms of areas that you do think are attractive. And, and why don't we start with energy? It is interesting that you know, when you do look at where the stocks are currently trading versus WTI, which hit another record, and the cash flow that, that will mean for some of these companies, um, they they might still be very attractively valued, even though some of them are up like to, I don't know, two hundred percent. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. They are and they are attractively valued, and we do own them. But it, it's one of those interesting stories. Whereas, like I say, I'll I look at those tech stocks, and if they weaken a, up to a point, I'll be buying them for the long term. I think oil energy stocks right now is more, yeah, they look good for the next year or two years or whatever. I would want to own them for a longer term. You've got a couple of big headwinds. I mean, first of all, it's just a money flow. I mean, when you look at, you know, Harvard and Yale and Norwegian National Pension Fund and everybody who's getting out of fossil fuels, you know, you are taking basically demand for stocks out on a permanent basis, which is going to impede valuations. And that's not going to change. So you're going to get a lower valuation over time. And on the other side too, I mean, you know, I think we've hit 
peak demand for oil or, you know, we're not there or close to it. Because, I mean, when you look at the migration into obviously the electrical vehicles, but, you know, other spots as well, you know, in terms of power generation from, from renewable sources rather than fossil fuels and all of that, the demand curve will be driving down. So you have two sort of headwinds in your face right now, which is a little bit why these things are trading at, you know, two, three, four times operating cash flow. But in the short term, the companies are doing what the market wants them to do. They're mm -hmm. saying, we're not going to make the crazy mistakes of the past that we're going to grow and we're going to take most of this money and shove it back into the ground into more growth and more production. What they're saying now is we're going to take this windfall and we're going to give it back to the shareholders. We're going to buy back our own stock. You know, we're going to increase dividends and other things. So they're they're sharing it. It's like they're learning a lesson. It reminds me a little bit of the, you know, the back stocks from the 80s when everyone knew the a no growth industry, slow growth, but they weren't allowed to advertise anymore. Uh, so they, they generate a lot of free cash flow. And the companies like Philip Morris that ended up doing yeah. well, they generated cash flow and they reinvested it into growth industries. Uh, yeah. Like they bought craft and others, you know, there's some things that are better than others. But I think energy companies, you, you're probably, you know, I think the, the, the ones that will do well longer terms are the ones that sort of see this and probably take some of this excess cash flow, make the shareholders happy in the short term, but then in, invest in areas like renewables and others that will sustain them over longer periods of time. And I'm starting to see them do it. I think I saw TC Energy, TransCanada doing that the other day, some announcements into renewables and all of that. And maybe take some of that cash flow and re redirect it into something that's a little more sustainable. You'll give you know, yeah. shareholders a service in the end. So. And John, just to pick up on that, um, you know, the, the tobacco companies, because they've, they've almost been quiet strategies that have worked. And yeah. I think that investors have been well rewarded, whether it's dividends or just a constant steady stock price. Do you own any of them? Don't own the tobacco, you know, the degree they're around anymore. But, uh, you know, you deal with similar slow growth companies that kick out a lot of cash flow. I mean, we've got big money and we've got a lot in the pipeline sector. Uh, in the utilities, and even to degree the telecom. I mean, the telecom companies are kicking out massive cash flows right now, and they're building up. They're almost like infrastructure assets. And you know, the whole Rogers thing aside, in the past couple of weeks, you know, I've got you know, we've got, we've got Telus, we've got BCE, we've got Rogers. You know, we had Shaw across the board. We've got names in the sector. They kick out great cash flow. They're decent valuations. A lot of the money is now free cash flows so and go back into increasing dividends because. You know, when the bond market looks as bad, the other thing we're looking for is not just high yield stocks, but companies that can grow their dividends as well. So you've got to have some ability. And, and that's, you know, this great double whammy then of a decent yield, which protects your downside and some growth in that dividend over time, too. Mm -hmm. um, and while we're on the, the telecom front, what, what do you make of Rogers? Do you, do you understand why this all took place in terms of Ed wanting to, I don't even know how to word all of this, but. Um, why there was such a difference of opinion in terms of the upper management. Well, I know, Catherine, you're probably closer to this than I am in terms of, you know, knowing the people in the industry and things like that a little bit. I, I, I Way back when, when, I used to meet Ted Rogers all the time back when he had, you know, Graham Savage and Colin Watson running his cable divisions. We used to go to the, so I've been, been investing in this company for 30 years, but, it, you know, it is this problem with the Canadian, these Canadian companies we've seen for a while now, first of all, the multiple voting structures, you know, you got it, and the media yeah. companies are the worst, you got it with Quebec or you've got it with Cogeco, obviously with Rogers, with Shaw, which, you know, I, it's amazing that they're still able to do it. I've seen some IPOs in the past year where you still have that. So that's disproportionate and it gives control, obviously, and management and allows them to ensconce themselves a little bit better. But 
Having said that, what goes on with Joe Natale and the rest of the management team and why Edward Rogers is, is, is you know, so turned off by what he's been doing in the past couple of years surprised me a little. I didn't think of Joe Natale particularly doing that, that bad a job, but maybe it was the issue of the board members he wanted. He just wanted more control that way. So in the end, the solution is probably from a shareholder point of view, the best you could have asked for. I mean, you know, the change occurred. It didn't really matter which side. You don't have an immediate change in management. So the Shaw deal can probably still go ahead. So, you know, all things considered the damage, which is why you're probably seeing the stock growling a little bit in the past couple of days too. Yeah, yeah, the market seems to have brushed it aside. They're, you know, they're lucky. I mean, if you really look at, um, you know, companies, particularly in the States, when you see that kind of item take place, I mean, you, you got to, you got to be careful in terms of selling pressure, really. And it's not new in Canada. I mean, we saw it, you know, with, with Magna. And I mean, I can take that back to Canadian Tire back in the 80s. Remember the Billis family were, were fighting yeah. all over the ownership. I mean, this is, you know, you know, the genesis of that TV show, Succession, you know, it comes from real situations. No one's making that stuff up. It's, <laughs> you know, maybe it's fictionalized on the show a little bit. But, you know, these, you know, these battles are going on. They always will. But, the, you know, you you want a cleaner corporate structure. You want, you know, management to be accountable to the shareholders. You want, hey, personally, you want the idea of, you know, one share, one vote. Um, yeah. But, you know, maybe that's a little too utopian to expect in this environment right now. I don't know. Maybe, although it is the way the majority of Wall Street works. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, I want to mention, uh, bring up something else. When you talk about EV, and we're talking about, you know, headlines that uh, that have kind of, uh, struck people lately. Tesla. What do you? And the stock's down ten percent today. Didn't move much yesterday on the news that you know Elon Musk took a vote on Twitter as to whether or not he should sell his shares on the back of potential capital gains changes in the United States. Suggestions of that. Um, what do you make of what he did? What he's doing? What he's trying? What's his messages? Well, I don't want to read too much off Elon Musk. I mean, I don't want to, you know, shoot the guy uh, or I mean, down in terms of, you know, he's, he's succeeded far beyond whatever I've ever done or anything like that. But what I'm getting at is, you know, I'm not going to say narcissistic or anything like that. But I mean, when you look, he does so much that's better self-gratifying. I mean, the idea that, you know, do you really need to put tweets out there about your wealth versus Jeff Bezos' wealth? You need to do a lot of these stuff. He really seems to want to be in front of the camera and have all these things about him. Like, yeah, he's got a fantastically successful company. They're doing exceptionally well. And they've done well with the space thing and the valuations have made him the richest man in the world. Well, you know, congratulations. But I tell you what, you know, in, in the end, if there's anything you say, what is the biggest risk to Tesla? I, I think something that Elon Musk could accidentally do, which he did a couple of years ago when he, you know, he made these tweets about this company. You can't take shots at the SEC, Catherine. You can't yeah. go up there taking playing shots. I mean, there's a world you do have to play in uh, to, to some degree. And I don't think he's, you know, I think he feels like he's maybe above it. So, I mean, that's a sort of, you know, sort of getting no, no. personalizing it that much, but I just sort of sit back and we don't invest in the company. The valuation is beyond what I think is reasonable. Like the idea that, Tesla can be worth over a trillion dollars and that GM is worth like 60 or 70. In the end, yeah, you know, Tesla's a better company and they don't have all the legacy products that GM has to deal with. But in the end, I don't know who's going to be the dominant player in electric vehicles in 2030. Like I know electrical vehicles are going to be, you know, the mainstay out there at that point. And I think, you know, some of the government targets they have here for, you know, how soon they can replace internal combustion is maybe a little bit too optimistic, but in the end, 
yeah, there's going to be multiple players in this business. I don't know that these valuation differentials should exist as they are right now. Yeah, understood. Um, I want to get your top ideas, maybe, you know, your top two picks that you would actually put new money to work in today. What would um, they be? I'd probably take uh, shots at uh, something like, a, a, I look at Martin Rayo, which has been a real disappointment on the auto side this year, you know, three times operating cash flow management, I think it tripped a little bit on all their, uh, well, obviously with the supply chain issues and all of that, the valuation is extremely cheap. They're lightweighting vehicles right now. They have uh, some graphene and uh, investments on the side that are, you know, probably worth, you know, three to four dollars a share for a stock trading at eleven dollars. And you know, and then you you, you edge edge that out, and you got a company probably trading six or seven times normalized earnings. So just ridiculously cheap. And I just think that this sector will turn around. And you know, like Magna and some of the others are are great as well. And I mentioned GM too, but I just think there's a evaluation uh, anomaly. Uh, another probably Manulife on the financials. I just think I look at a company like Manulife right now, and I think, you know, seven yeah. times operating earnings, it's growing the earnings. It's, uh, I, I know they need slightly higher interest, but I think they're getting slightly higher interest rates. So you got global exposure. I think the valuations, people have walked away from this, like capital ratios are good. So yeah, there's a lot of things that are just cheap, cheap, but out of favor. And I thought, uh, I'd rather be buying into those areas right now than, you know, chasing the things that have necessarily, you know, worked in the past uh, mm. year and a half. Understood. And then lastly here, John, um, I want to get your take with on the news that um, that the Canadian banks ha, are, are now allowed to increase their dividends. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what that might mean for, for increased dividends and, and why this even occurred and why they couldn't increase them before? Well, you know, why they occurred is, is, is sort of logical. I mean, obviously, when the pandemic broke, it's uh, everyone looked at the financial crisis again. You worried about the financial. So, the you know, obviously, the regulators came down and said, well, you can't, you know, one's increasing your dividends and uh, certainly can't buy back any stock right now. You've got to, you know, fortress yourself and, and protect your capital and all of that. And they did. And they took provisions of, I think, $20 billion in that first quarter after the pandemic broke. But then in the end, because of all you know, the government programs and, and you know, uh, CSP and everything, CWS and all of these things, the wage supplements, and, and the fact that the companies you know, held up better because of those, they really didn't take any of those loan losses. So in the end, their capital positions have built up. They got massive amounts of excess capital and you know the earnings have started to come back and so the end you know let them do something with the money and there's three things you can basically do you can either do acquisitions you can buy back your own stock or you can increase the dividends so you know i expect to see a little bit and the market has, has been counting on this for a while so it, it makes sense the capital ratios are solid but you know they've held in very well and just i guess bottom line is the damage wasn't nearly as bad as everybody thought it would be yeah. at that that particular point in time when the pandemic broke. Yeah. Uh, what, what are your top bank picks these days? I'd probably put CIBC as at the top of the list right now. I think TD has been a little under loved, under owned for a while. I think you make a bit of recovery there, more US exposure. So you've got to look at that. Bank of Montreal is fine. And we too. I mean, across the board, the big five are still in in relatively good shape. Scotia, we're not there right now. They've, they've tripped a little, obviously, on, on some of the Latin American plays. And I think some of the recovery in the emerging economies is a little bit slower and messier than you've seen in North America and even Europe right now. So it'd be a little reticent of some of the exposures there. I mean, obviously, what's going on with the currencies and everything else. I mean, I looked at the problems, you know, China stumbled a little bit recently and uh, cut, cutting back. 
uh, and have to stimulate again. I mean, you look at what's going on in Brazil and some of the other emerging economies there, obviously what happened in Turkey recently. So, you know, I, I think Latin America is going to fall under that same umbrella. So it's probably a North American and European focus is going to be a little bit more helpful to banks, but Canadian banks, that means just Canada, U.S. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and well, it's not a bank, it, and but you did mention acquisitions, that the banks aren't making acquisitions. It's really interesting to watch CI Financial make these bolt-on acquisitions of uh, private equity client, or pri- private clients, not private equity, but private clients. Um, and the stock responds very well to this strategy. Um, any thoughts on CI these yeah. days? Yeah, we, we had uh, bought it. I mean, we traded out of it recently because it really has had a great move this year. But it was just when it was under twenty dollars, it was it was crazy how how cheap it was. You know, six times operating cash flow, and the management was just kicking out tons of free cash flow. So they're buying back their own stock as well. And that just, in a retrospect, does this seem like an easy call? Now it's you know, I think it's around twenty eight, twenty nine now. It's had a pretty strong move. You know, I think the mutual fund industry is into a sort of a longer term decline to some degree, you know, that those fee-based businesses are obviously getting hurt by ETFs. And yeah, they're, they're sort of more into the registered plans and uh, moving into private wealth management and doing a lot of U.S. acquisitions. So a lot of room to grow there and they got the capital. So, you know, they're, they're in pretty good shape that way. And it's just consolidation in the industry continues and, and just it's scale. And it, it reminds me of the pharmaceutical industries to some degree in the 80s and all of that. It's the guys who own the, you know, it's not necessarily the guys who have the products, but the guy who have the distributions that are really the big winners. And, you know, it's a, running a small investment counseling firm myself, Catherine. I mean, yeah. I could not have started today what we started. And, you know, I started this thing in 1993. You know, there's a scale of the operations between, you know, regulation, distribution costs and all of that. It's just it's going to the larger players. And, you know, the, the small guys are totally getting squeezed out by these these costs, we we actually got we got fired by our uh, custodian because we're too our pools funds were too small, so they bumped the cost so much it became uneconomical. We had to take them somewhere. That you know, it really and, wow. and so you, you've almost got to look to do mergers to get these economies of scale, and uh, it just that's the reality of the business. So the big are going to get bigger. The small will you know disappear or or be assimilated into that. So yeah, and we've talked about that actually for years and, and how important small firms are to a lot of people. Um, but but yeah, you have to keep the eye on the cost. It, it's it's just to your point, you know, it's the world we play in. Oh, you can't do it in this environment, like between the regulatory costs and, and everything else involved in that and distribution. If you've got products, getting people to sell them, distribute them. I mean, yeah. just, you know, I don't we don't have the uh, bank sales force in the branches. You don't have the, the CI thing and all of that. Yeah. So you come. But anyway, it's, but, but you got uh, but you've got the reputation and the longevity and the know how. You can be a niche player, and that's what we survived yeah. as being a niche player for pension funds, for individuals, for you know, we run high high net worth and all of that, and survive. And I'm happy yeah. to do that and continue on. But yeah, I think we got lucky starting up the business when we did, and, and we're able to grow it because could not do the same thing today. Absolutely. So. Yeah, understood. Uh, all right, John, it's been great seeing you and catching up with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks again, Catherine. Always fun. Thank you. You too.